0: Well, you can open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And as you're doing, I do want to make one slight correction about the evangelism day. Um, Primarily, that day will not be necessarily for training as much as it will be to give an opportunity to facilitate us as a church going out regularly. So what's going to happen with those evangelism days is that on the third Saturday, this is the third Saturday, it will be on in November, but every consecutive month after that will be on the second Saturday of every month. We will um, be here for a short time, maybe uh, 15, 20 minutes, and I'll help train you in maybe just a, a little bit of a, um, a tool, one of the evangelism tools, and we'll just keep recycling them. And then we'll go out Uh, to the lakefront, um, to various places in Mandeville, and we'll spend the rest of that, say, hour and a half sharing our faith. And so the point is training, but the point is just giving us as a church an opportunity for us to regularly be sharing our faith. I know that you guys are doing that in your own lives on a regular basis, or you should be. And if not, you should feel convicted and, and, and make some changes and allow us to help you in that direction. Um, but this particular training um, and opportunity time will just be, give our church um, an open door on a regular basis to use um, your time uh, to share your faith. It would be going out there, starting conversations with people, sharing the gospel, And uh, pray that God uses that as an opportunity for us to even see some people come to Christ and and come into our doors and grow in Christ. We'll go door to door sometimes, Uh, it will depend. But here's what I would like you to do. I would really love for you to reserve the second Saturday of every month, uh, that you would build your lives around that Saturday so that you could show up here and you could go out and you could evangelize. Uh, I know that that's a scary thing for most of you. Um, I know that that, you wonder how you'd ever be able to do that. But when I tell you that you can do it and you can enter into a conversation with a person you've never met before and you can know the gospel in such a clear way that you could be able to share it um, with ease and with conviction and with accuracy and with clarity, um, you can do it. Um, But if you never start doing it, you'll never be able to do that. And, um, and God has not made that rocket science. He, he's, in, he's given that and entrusted that uh, to every Christian. So, um, so you, can, you can do it. We can know the truth. We can trust God. We can pray. And we can just go do our best and try to talk to people about the gospel of Christ. Um, and most of the people that you meet on a day like that, you'll never see again unless they do come to Christ. So you don't need to worry about what they think about you. Um, or, or maybe if you've fumbled your words, et cetera. So please do, please do schedule the second Saturday of every month. Um, and I really want this to be a reoccurring, ongoing thing. Um, we're, gonna, we're gonna allow this to be the time for the next six months or so. And uh, and, and then um, we'll, we'll reassess, go from there. But I think this is gonna be the, the permanent a fixed time for us as a church to allow you an opportunity to share your faith. So please build your lives around that, okay? So we can have an opportunity as a church to do that. Um, so as we get into the text this morning, um, I'm excited and sad. This will be our last message in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And um, don't be excited about it. You don't know whether to clap or to cry. It's, it's a good book, and so we don't wanna leave it. It's exciting that the Lord has given us another uh, opportunity to um, to see what he says in his word and to know really in totality another book of the Bible. And so this will be one, I think, forever in our minds as a church and forever impacting us in our hearts that we'll always look back to, we'll always know what it meant, what it said, and how to apply it. So as we read this last section, let's do so um, uh, to start here. And I will start, we're going to be looking at verses 23 through 28 this morning, 23 through 28. And uh, we could really divide this into two. We're going to keep it into one, keep on schedule here. Uh, but, but this has so much for us. And I really pray that the Lord would do a oh, great work in your heart this morning. Let's read it, 23 through 28. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Well, this is the end here. And what we're seeing in this particular passage is simply Paul's final desires and final exhortations for this church. Some final desires and some final exhortations or commands. And so I've entitled the message, Well Wishes, because that's exactly what's in this text, what we're seeing here. Paul wants some good things for them and he's commanding some good things for them. And so if we were to go through this book and give it some kind of memorable theme, we could say that this book, the theme of the book of Thessalonians is a faithful shepherd encouraging a faithful church to be continuing in and growing in their faithfulness for the glory of God. A faithful shepherd instructing a faithful church to continue in their faithfulness and to grow in even more faithfulness. That's the whole point. Many people think this book is about mainly eschatology and it's, it's really not. That's part of it because Paul had to counsel them and shepherd them and some of that information, but it's really Paul's giving that eschatology teaching for the purpose of real practical application in their lives. That's not the point. The point is simply a faithful shepherd instructing them in a variety of different things. And this is a faithful church. It's a young church, but it's a faithful church, just like you are, just like we are. This church, it reminds me a lot of the Thessalonican church, young but faithful. And Paul is a faithful shepherd helping this church to become even more faithful and continue on in their faithfulness. In general, if we were to look at this book in chapters one through three, here's what we see in those first three chapters. We see Paul give the authenticity of their salvation. He speaks to the authenticity of it. They're truly saved. He speaks of the purity of the gospel message that came to them by these pure ministers, authenticity of their salvation, the purity of the ministry that came to them. And then he speaks of the sincerity of their lives, the evidence of the fruit that's being produced in them and through them. And so that's the first three chapters, the authenticity of their salvation, the purity of the gospel ministry that came to them, and the sincerity of uh, of their faith, their lives, the the fruit that's being produced in them. And then as we moved into chapters four through six, really Paul then moves from that indicative uh, information what they are, what's come to them, and and what he sees in them to this imperatival mood in in chapters 4 through 6. Essentially, in chapters 4 through 6, Paul then expresses now, here's how he desires for this church to grow. Here's how they're to grow as a church. And, And so therefore, he exhorts them in what they are to know, what they are to be, and what they are to do. And so really, if you see the the key moment at the end of chapter three, moving into chapter four in verses 11 through 13, Paul says this. So this is the, the transition from that third chapter into that fourth chapter. Paul says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that, now listen to this, he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. You've been saved. Now God, may he do this great work in you to produce this holiness Until he comes back. That's it. That's simply the purpose for which he is now moving into these last chapters to instruct them in. And really, in the next verse, in chapter four, verse one, he gives the purpose of why he wants them to grow. In chapters four through six, he's telling them how to grow, but he starts it off with the whole reason of why he wants them now to grow. Here's who you are in Christ. Here's what I've seen in you. Here's the purity of the gospel ministry that's come to you. Now I want you to grow, but first, before I tell you how to grow, let me tell you why I want you to grow. And so he starts in chapter four, verse one with this. Finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you would do so more and more. Here's the whole point of chapters four through six. I want you to grow more so that you please God. That's the whole point. And so what you're seeing is this true, faithful, saved, elect church being encouraged by the apostle Paul and then being told how to be even more faithful. And he's addressing some things that they need to learn, they need to know, they need to be, they need to believe, and they need to act on. It's the, this true church. It's an elect or saved church. That is the church, by the way. That's what the church is. Some people ask, is the church for believers or unbelievers? That, that's a really silly question. By definition, the church is the believers. And so this is a truly, this is a true church, meaning these are saved elect people. Of course, there's people coming in and out who are learning the gospel and being saved. We, of course, want that to happen. But this is a group of local believers And Paul wants their hearts, their faith, their minds, their lives to be strong and firm and established in the faith, just like we want you to be. We want you to be strong and stable and healthy and growing in the Lord. We want you to be firm in your faith. We want you to be made more like Christ. And he does so, he wants this because he wants their lives to please God. So he wants them to be sanctified. And so... To accomplish this, to accomplish this great work of sanctification in their lives, Paul has filled this letter with encouragements, with exhortations, with instructions, and even with commands uh, to help them, to help them. And as you know, as we moved into the end of chapter five, I mean, Paul really just picks up the pace. At the end of chapter five in verses 16 through 22, I mean, he doesn't mess around. He doesn't beat around the bush. It seems that he can't write fast enough. And he's just kind of this disjointed group of commands. Uh, just make sure you do this. Make sure you do that. Make sure you live like this. Make sure you relate to each other like this. Make sure you treat your leaders like this. Make sure you, you do this work in your own heart. Make sure you relate to God like this. I mean, they're just these kind of disjointed, just group of listings uh, of, of, of exhortations and commands for their lives. And so he's wanting them to be holy and he's just telling them everything that they've got to know and be in order to be holy. It's really like a parent's heartfelt attempt, like almost like a parent's writing a letter to their college student who is away for the first time, Right? giving them all this instruction. And at the end, they just, they just have all this wisdom that they need to say at the very end. Make sure you lock your door, wash your clothes, arrive to church on time, go to, go to every class. I mean, everything you can think of to ensure the success. I mean, that's what Paul's doing here. And so as he signs off now in this last little section, he's really giving a closing benediction. And it wraps up all of his instruction. And it does so by expressing the desire of his heart. He's expressing the desire of his heart and he's giving some final and foundational commands that's gonna just really be foundational to to doing everything that he's said in this letter. And so as he does so, what does he deal with here at the end here as he gives these well wishes, as he gives these desires of his heart and these final commands? Well, he deals really with number one, sanctification in verses 23 through 24. he deals with sanctification in verses 23 through 24. And then he, he kind of deals with another group of disjointed things here, but we're gonna summarize them like this in number two, supplication, sentiment, and submission in verses 25 through 28. So he deals first with sanctification and then with the ideas of supplication, sentiment, and submission. Let's deal with the sanctification first, verses 23 through 24. He says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. As we move into these verses, you see a transition with the word now. And so, Paul here is clearly transitioning from all this, the, these instructions, these commands, this kind of staccato form of listing that he just finished out with, to a, a closing benediction. It's a transition here, it's clear. And so after pouring out all of his love, his asking, his urging, remember, he's used all these different ways. He's like trying to figure out how to pull on the heartstrings in every way. He's asking, but he's urging, he's commanding, he's exhorting, he's encouraging. I mean, every which way to just get these folks to continue growing. And so after pouring out all of this love, after doing all of these things, after instructing, it's as if here at the end now, he kind of takes the foot off the gas It's like he takes the foot off the gas now, breathes for a second, falls back on the one thing he trusts in more than anything else. And that's the sovereignty of God in the lives of these people. The sovereignty of God in the lives of these people. To work in these believers, to do all the work that he hopes to be done in them. He says, now may God just do this work in you. I've told you everything I need to tell you. I've tried to get you to put forth all the effort. Now may God just do this work. So he's praying, he's asking, he's expressing, in a sense, the desire for God to do the work. As they put forth this effort to follow his instructions, what he must trust foundationally, look to, ask for, is that God would do this work in them to grow them into everything he wants them to be. And so as he transitions, what he's saying, the main thrust of what he's saying is, may God sanctify you. May God sanctify you. And so he transitions this. It's the whole point here, what's kind of really wrapping up all of this is the word sanctify. He says it in verse 23 as we move through it may the God of peace himself sanctify you. The verb is what is called in the optative mood. So this verb, what's wrapped up in it and the way that it's constructed is, is what's called the optative mood. You've heard the imperative mood, it's a mood of command. And this is the optative mood. The indicative is just stating the, the normal, obvious, factual information about something. This is the optative mood, and you can tell by how it's constructed. And the optative mood expresses a wish or a desire. That's why the word may is inserted here. May is not in the Greek. It's just, it's wrapped up in the verb. You translate an optative word with verb with the word may because you're wishing for it to happen. You're wishing for it to happen. And so this is what's here. It's wrapped up in this word to sanctify. It's in the optative mood. It expresses a wish or a desire. That's why I call the well wishes because he's gonna do it here with the word sanctify and later when he speaks of the word keeping or being kept or preserving. He's wishing for something to happen. He's desiring for something to happen to them. He's, in a, he's praying for this to happen. This is, this is his wish for them. What is his greatest wish for them? As he closes up all of this instruction, what is his greatest wish for these people? And this is in the third person singular, meaning he's speaking of of someone, he namely, which is God here, obviously, may he, may he do, this is my wish, may he, God, do this, sanctify you. God is the one doing this, this is his wish, and his wish is for them to be sanctified. That's the desire he's expressing. In in other words, in light of everything that he's said so far in this book, in light of all the information and all the application, remember he says, I don't want you to be without knowledge so that you can live like this. It's information that leads to transformation. The, The point is, in all of this, All that I've given you so far in this letter, Paul says, in light of who you are now in Christ, truly saved people, and most recently at the end of chapter five, in light of all these somewhat disconnected exhortations, commands, pleadings, and urgings that I just gave you, may all of this be so applied, listen, and so lived out and go so deep in your heart and change you so permanently And to such an extent that you are truly becoming, you become what you are supposed to become. May you be sanctified completely. May all of this teaching that I just gave you work in your heart and may you truly become what you are supposed to be in Christ. May you truly become everything that God wants you to be. That's what he's saying here. That's the expressed desire of his heart. He wants them to be changed permanently, apply this stuff deeply, live it out to be changed to such an extent that they're like Christ. He wants them to truly leave behind all that they're not supposed to be. And this is Paul's desire. This is Paul's wish for them. He wants them to be truly and completely sanctified, completely transformed. Now the word sanctified here is from the verb hagiazo, which means to make holy. From the word hagias, which is the noun which means holy. This is the verb to make holy. Now, here's the expressed desire of my heart. May He, God, make you holy. That's what Paul's expressing here. That's what Paul's expressing here. That's what he's speaking of here. He's speaking of the practical holiness in the life of the believer. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. He wants the practical holiness in the believer's life. The word holy means to be set apart. It means to be separated. It's literally the, what this word means. Paul expresses here as the pinnacle of his desire for this church is that they would be made completely separate, separated. That's what the church is supposed to be, separated, separate separated from what you named it <laughs> separated from sin separated from the world separated from their old ways separated from their false beliefs separated from their whole old self and they are to be completely conformed to Christ completely he doesn't want them to be kind of like the world so they can be relevant to the world he doesn't want them to be relevant to the world so they can be popular in the world. He doesn't want them to put on some of their new self and yet keep some of their old self, the, the old self, the parts of the old self that they feel really proud of and they feel really unique in. He don't want any of that. He's not impressed by their uniqueness. He wants them to be obviously distinct, entirely like Christ, completely separate. You know, the philosophy of the modern church nowadays is that we would be somewhat sanctified like Christ, but let's make sure we're not too extreme so that we can still be relevant to the world, popular in the world, and then we can reach the world. That philosophy is nowhere in Scripture. The philosophy of God is that you would be made so Christ-like. Yes, you will be otherworldly and distinct and weird and set apart from the world to the world, right? That's, the, that's God's goal for you. Is that you would be completely distinct, set apart, and they would look at you weird. Because they can't believe that someone lives by such different rules. And you know what? That is the greatest thing. If you're worried about reaching the lost people around you, that is the greatest thing that you can do for them. Because they're not impressed by you being like them and yet also being a Christian. They need to see something entirely different so that they're convicted that where they stand is not right. And they need to be made something completely different into something completely different. If you never show the distinction, they'll never know that they need to change. It's gonna produce conviction. And sometimes the result and the response of that conviction in their own lives and in their own hearts is not gonna be favorable towards you. But you can't control that. The ones who's God, who, whom God is working in they will see that, they will feel this great conviction and they will turn from their sin and trust in Christ. And so you have to understand here what God wants for your life. He wants you to be completely holy. No holds barred. There's nothing left behind. This is Paul's expressed desire for them. He's given them all this instruction and he just, he lays off the gas and just says, may God do this work in you to make you completely holy. You know, holiness is the point of your Christian life. There's a lot of churches and a lot of philosophies of Christianity that says success and leadership and, and, and whatever you go down the list is the point of your life. No, it's not. The point of your life now is holiness. That includes being effective in evangelism. So that's not just simply a holy huddle. Holiness is, results in you caring about the lost and evangelizing. But the goal of your life as a Christian is holiness. The scriptures make that clear. That's what Paul desires for the church. Now, let me tell you, the scriptures make clear, like in Hebrews ten ten, 10, says this has happened to you when you became a believer, that all believers in a positional sense at the point of salvation have been made holy, separate, distinct, set apart. It says in Hebrews 10, 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So in a salvific sense, in a positional sense, you have been made holy. Isn't that amazing? And then the scriptures say in Philippians, like one instance in Philippians three twenty through 21 says that this will happen to all believers in a permanent sense at the point of glorification. Does it happen to you in a positional sense? It's gonna happen to you in a permanent sense. Philippians 3 says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He's got everything in subjection to him. When you die, or when the Lord Jesus comes, he will transform you by his power into what you were supposed to be, into Christ's likeness into complete purity, sanctification, and holiness at the time of your glorification. So you're, you're made holy in a positional sense at the point of salvation. You're made holy in a permanent sense at the point of glorification. But the scriptures also speaks to now you being made holy in this practical sense. Positional, permanent, but here's practical. Is that for instance, in this, this same book, 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 through 3, he says that this is God's will for the believer's life as they live in a practical sense. This is the way that they are to live in Christ. He says this, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God. You ready for this? What's God's will for my life? Somebody please tell me, you ready? Your sanctification I mean, I don't know if you could get any more clear. That's your plan. What's your plan for your life? What are you doing with your life nowadays? I'm being sanctified. That's my goal. And there's no better goal. I think that all three of these, the positional, the practical, and the permanent are wrapped up in Ephesians chapter five, verses 25 through 27. I think he has in mind all three. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now watch, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So listen to this. He, he, he did this work by his death. He set believers apart positionally through his death, forgiving their sins, imputing to them the righteousness of Christ through the word of God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He continues to do so through the continued work of the word, washing of the word in their lives, continuing to make them holy. And then he will do this great work when he presents the church to himself in heaven. All three wrapped up right there. You know, I think this, that, that, those words are inc- incredible. You wanna know what God is, is about? Think about this. How, how unique is that statement? He's going to present the church to himself. What do you present to yourself? I mean, that sounds silly, doesn't it? I'm presenting to yourself. Right? I'm going to present this to myself. Why would you present something to yourself for your own enjoyment, for your own pleasure? Does anyone present anything to themselves in that sense? That's pretty strange wording. But God so wants to present the church to himself for his enjoyment. Look at this great work that I've done in my people, making them holy, sanctified, blameless, without blemish, like Christ. And now they're here and I'm presenting them to me. Look at the work I did. And I get to enjoy these great people that I saved. They're not great in themselves, great because of how they've been saved and sanctified. And they honor me. They glorify me. And so he's doing this work. The church has been saved, and now Paul's desire for them is to be made completely separate, completely holy, completely like Christ. And this process, by the way, will occur in every true believer. The the practical holiness aspect will be true because they've experienced this regeneration or the new birth. You have a new nature. You can't not be sanctified. If you're not being sanctified, you really, we need to talk about your salvation, the reality of it. Because you cannot not be sanctified. You have a new nature. The old is being done away with. The new is is coming. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit in your life. Listen, this is inherent even in your salvation. In order to be saved, one must repent of their sins. Jesus said that over and over again. Repent, right? Turn away. That's inherent, this idea of turning away from the old life and turning to the truth and to the new life and to God and to Christ and to be committed to believing in him and living for him. That's inherent even in in your response and salvation. But then as he seals you with his Holy Spirit, I I mean, that's the continued work in the life of the believer by God. And so this is inherent in Christianity that you would change, that you would be changed, that you're living for him, that you're living this, this new life. And so you have to understand the old self has been put to death in Christ. The new life in the spirit has been given. Let me explain this to you. Listen, your old self that was blind, that was dead, that was in unrighteousness and sin, this old life, God opens your eyes. He effectually calls you. You see the truth of Christ and you believe in him. And when you believe in him, the, the, the death of Christ counts for you as your death. Meaning that life that you lived here, is, it's been punished. It's as if you died for your sin. It's over. The slate is clean. That dead person has now uh, received the due payment for their sin. As, when Christ dies, it's as if, as if you died for your sin. It's counted on your behalf. And then when you die now and your sin is forgiven, God, by his grace, gives this new life. He gives this spirit. You're born again, not born again in the sense that you enter into your mother's womb, in the sense that you have a, a, a life that's done away with, and now you have this new life in the spirit. It's forgiven. It's, it's free. It's clear. It's clean. And it's being made new. And as you're being made new now, the spirit is ridding you practically of your old life and you're being conformed now into what God intends for your life until he brings you home and then you're made fully complete and holy. That's the idea. I mean, the reality is true. You have been freed from the penalty of sin. Now you're being freed from the power of sin. The old life is being separated from the new. And then eventually when you die or Christ returns, you will be freed from the what? Presence of sin. I mean, that's the reality. That's just true. And so yet in this life, listen now, in the practical sense of sanctification, in the practical process, there are degrees. As we separate ourselves from the old life and we focus on this practical sense of sanctification, listen, there are degrees to this, there are levels to this. And Paul here is adding then that he wants them to be sanctified entirely or totally or completely because he wants the degree of their sanctification to be without any hindrance. He, he doesn't want anything left of the old life. You will be sanctified if you were in Christ. But there are degrees and levels to this depending on a few things and he wants this church to be completely sanctified entirely. That's his desire for the church. Through their tireless spiritual work and effort, he wants them to apply what he's taught them. Through God's sovereign work and what he just mentioned and will mention. This is Paul's desire for the church. This is what he says. Listen, he says, we've kind of covered the sanctification, the completely process. Now let's kind of backtrack a little bit. He says, may the God of peace himself do it. Now keep in mind here that he just finished this teaching and instruction and, and asking and urging and commanding and, and all of this work. So he's encouraging them in their labor. Remember this in the book, he talked about their labor and their work and their steadfastness. Like he wants these folks to work on their sanctification. He is not encouraging them to be passive. Now, may you all just sit around so God can do this work in you, right? That's not what he's saying here. They are to walk, he says, in a way that pleases God. They are to make every effort. In fact, the whole purpose of writing this letter is that they would apply it. And so he is, he is encouraging them to strive to grow more and more, but as he finishes this instruction, he looks to the only one who can do this great work as they put forth this effort, right? We do the work, God gives the what? The, glory. the growth, he gives the growth and he gives the glory as well. But he says, now may God, now listen to this, may God of peace himself, may the God of peace himself sanctify you. So who's the, the, the true source of spiritual growth? God. He's the one who does the work in the believer's life. He, he gets the glory. In other words, God is sovereignly working in your life as you put forth effort to grow. He, he tells us to walk by the spirit, right? He works in us as we walk. You are to walk, put one foot in front of the other, do the things that God commands and his spirit is the one empowering you to walk and doing the work as you do walk. So you get none of the credit, but you're trying to walk. This is the whole point. In fact, the emphasis here then now particularly is on God's work. So let's focus on it for just a second because this is really encouraging. The fact here is that the emphasis now is on God's work. As the believers obey Paul's commands, here's what he's looking to now, God's work in their sanctification process. The pronoun himself, it's really unnecessary, right? He could have just said, now may God sanctify you completely, right? So, but it's added. The reason why those pronouns are added like that is to give emphasis, to give this emphasis of intimate work on behalf of that person. He is involved. May he, may God himself do it. And so it's what Paul is emphasizing here is God's intimate involvement in the sanctification of the believers. It's an unnecessary word unless you're stressing the fact that God is doing it himself. He's not delegating this task, right? Think about this. And not only this, but listen now, it's the, in, in the emphatic position, meaning it begins the sentence, Here's how it reads. Himself, now the God of peace, may he sanctify you completely. Himself is put in the front. So not only is it added there for emphasis, it's unnecessary, but it's also in the front, which is in the emphatic position. God's gonna do this work in you. He's intimately involved in your life. May he take this work and bring it to completion in you. May he do this. He's the only one who can, and he is doing this in you. This is the expressed desire of my heart. God, please, by your own strength, your own might, ensuring the growth of these believers, do this work in these people. That's what he wants for them. That's what he wants. Perhaps this is even a prayer because it's his wish, it's his desire and the optative mood. That is a, really a prayer, but he's expressing his deepest wish. It falls back on his, his greatest confidence that God would do it. He can't leave his complete confidence in them because he knows they're fallen. But his confidence is in God to do the work that God would sanctify himself, do the work here. God's intimate involvement. God doesn't delegate this task. He is sovereignly working in the heart of the believer to make them holy. Now, how does he do this work? Just simply put, well, we know it's by his sovereign hand and here's the ways he does this work. You say, how does God intimately work in my life to sanctify me? Well, he works by his word, number one. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is what? Truth. How does God sanctify you? By the truth of his word. Listen now, Paul says he wants them to be sanctified. He wants God to do it. How does God practically work in the life of the believer? Well, he works his sovereign, sanctifying work in the believer's life through, number one, the word, the truth. In this passage in John 17, 17, when Jesus is praying this, Or when Jesus is saying this, he is praying. He's asking God, listen, sanctify them in your truth. Isn't that wonderful? Think about this. He's asking God to do it through the means by which he chooses to do this work, which is in his word, through his word. God is sovereignly working. He wants God to see to the fact that this is done by the means by which God has chosen to do this work, which is his word. And so God sanctifies you, sovereignly sanctifies you through the work of his word. You can't be sanctified apart from the word. You can't be. You say, well, why am I not growing as much as so-and-so? You will grow proportionately to the amount of time you spend in God's word. If you just read God's word, you're going to grow. Right? I mean, there's all, all these great examples of people in our church. I mean, you see Pastor Mike, I mean, how much God has grown him in his life. He eats the word. He eats the word. It's his meal all the time. His knowledge and his growth and his his holiness doesn't come from his own effort. It's not because he's super special, more special than you are, although Mike, you are special. It's because of his time spent in the word of God. And you can be changed too. And I just used one example. I could use so many of you as an example. Second Timothy says the word of God is profitable and sufficient to change us, right? So it's not only by his word, but it's by his spirit. He, the spirit of God illuminates the word. By the way, if you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. Don't believe in the second additional, whatever, addition you know, of, of the Holy Spirit or reception. I mean, the scripture's clear. You receive the Holy Spirit at the point of your conversion and everybody has him if you're truly saved and you have all of him. You don't have to get more of him. You yield more uh, of yourself to him. But listen, he illuminates the word in your life. He, He leads you into all truth. That's what Jesus said the spirit would do. That doesn't mean like you just close your eyes and he's gonna lead you into truth, right? Or if you're sitting by yourself and you're thinking, you'll come up with truth. He, he's, Jesus says, you can't take in everything that I've said to you. Like, it's gonna have to be spaced out. The Spirit's gonna help you. He's gonna lead you into it. That's what he means here. So he helps us understand. He helps us live it out. He's our helper. The scriptures tell us that the Spirit helps us to pray and obey. The Spirit helps it convicts us of sin and of, of righteousness. And so the Holy Spirit is working in your life through the sovereign work of God, the the word of God. But here, thirdly, it's by your own effort also. It's by your effort. Galatians 5, as I mentioned, walk by the spirit. Romans 12, 2, it says, be transformed by the what? Renewing of your, you got some work to do. You got to renew your mind, right? Right? Philippians 2 says this, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work it out. God's gotta do this work in you. It's it's by your effort, right? You have to put in the work. So it's by the word, it's by the spirit, it's by your effort. And fourthly, it's by God's providential work. It's by his providence. He brings about suffering. He brings about circumstances. He brings about relationships to sanctify us, make us holy. That's how the basics of how God does this sovereign work of sanctification in your life. Through his word, through his spirit, through your effort and through his providence. And so this is what Paul wants these are all the means that God himself uses to intimately and sovereignly make you holy. Paul says it's the God of peace he wants to do this. Why does he say peace here? Why doesn't he say the God of holiness make you holy? Well, he could, but I think he has focused here is he's kind of closing out where he left off, which is their true salvation. This is what God has provided ultimately for the believer in salvation. He's given them peace with God. He's given them peace through the work of Christ. And now he's making them holy through the salvation that they have. And he's committed to bringing this work to completion so that they will have even more intimate fellowship with him and Christ-likeness with him. And then he will bring them permanently into his presence to have ultimate peace and fellowship with him in heaven. It's the God who made peace for them. It's the God who's making peace for them. And it's the God ultimately who will finalize this great peace for them, this relationship between God and man. Now, just because we got to kind of stay on schedule, that's the main thrust of this. And so the rest of this just kind of illuminates this a little bit more. So we'll only touch on it a little bit more briefly. But verse 23, he says, as he moves on, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says here at the end. So it's really another verb in the optative mood. The whole point is, after I've given you the instruction, this is my desire, may God please sanctify you. That's his desire. And now he kind of moves on and adds on to it, enlightens them a little bit more, illuminates the idea a little bit more, expresses a little bit more, of what he wishes and desires. And he gives this other verb, which again is in the optative mood. It's another wish. It's another desire. It's why, again, I named this well wishes. I mean, this is what he wants. What's the the verb here that he's putting in the optative mood again? It's keeping or preserving. You see how the word may is also added again. It's not in the Greek. It's just added because it's wrapped up in the verb. May he keep you in this way. But this is not a separate idea. This is not like just a separate thought that disconnected from their sanctification. He's not just randomly talking now about the perseverance of the saints. I mean, it is wrapped up in that, but he's connecting this to the idea of sanctification. May he, listen now, make you completely holy. That's his one desire. That's his ultimate hope for the church. And in that same vein, may he keep you. Keep you what? And keep you how? Keep you, what does he mean by this? Keep you in that trajectory towards holiness. Keep you in that trajectory until you become blameless. That's the idea. May he preserve you. May he keep guard over you. The idea here, the word here, is this keeping guard. It's preserving. It's, it's, it's keeping in a state, but it's keeping the activity going. May he keep you going in this direction until he comes so that you're blameless, not blameless in terms of perfection, but above reproach, that when you stand with all the saints, as we've talked about it, for the beam of seat of judgment, when God will judge the believers for their works done, their good or their bad, not sending them to hell or heaven based on those, but they're they're in heaven permanently because of the righteousness of Christ that they've received, but judging their works, And all the things that were pointless and unholy and burning them up, and yet all the things that were true and lasting and and holy will stay. And so he wants them to be kept preserved, going in this direction, right? This is his wish or his desire. This is his wish or desire. And in connection with the sanctification, he says this, soul, spirit, and body. The point is not what's different about those three things. It's just a phrase to say, all of you, every part of you, every part of you may it be kept preserved, continuing on in this trajectory towards holiness so that you'll be above reproach when the Lord returns. Don't you want that? Don't you want that for your life? That's what the Lord wants for you. You can summarize these things in just simply the inward and the outward. He wants you inwardly changed and outwardly changed. You, you really can't emphasize one or de-emphasize one, can you? You can't say, well, my heart is changed, but my actions are not, right? Yeah, I know what you see in my actions, but in my heart, I'm more like Christ. You can't say that. Then you're antinomian or you're a Gnostic. And that's heresy, and you can't have the other way around. You can't say, well, my actions are all good, but my heart is not, and my mind is not. That's hypocrisy. He wants true sanctification. Some of us are just outwardly playing the game. Some of us just come and, and we can look holy to pretty much everybody, but inside we know we are not. Our desire is not Godward. Our sanctification isn't wrought by the spirit and the word. We can just be good people for a while. That's not what he wants. And some of it is just, we say, well, God knows my heart. No, the Bible says out of the overflow of the heart, the what? The mouth speaks. And we can add the hands do. You will be what you are becoming internally. And so he is saying here, may God keep you on this trajectory towards true holiness internally, externally, until completion. May he guard the process and the advancement of sanctification in your life until it's complete. May this be behavioral and practical and internal and true. May you be blameless, not perfect. But, but free of guilt in an irreproachable type of way until the coming or the parousia, the same word that he's used throughout this entire epistle to speak of the rapture. Every instance, that's why I said this, I don't know, a couple months ago, in this text, in this book, is speaking of the rapture except for the day of the Lord. So every eschatological thing in this book is speaking of the rapture except for the day of the Lord, but he's speaking of the same thing here when Christ comes to get you that you would be blameless before the saints that you have no reason to be ashamed among the other believers or among God when he sees you and assesses your life at the advent or the coming or the occasion of his of his presence now look at this here at the end in verse 24 he says he who calls you is faithful he will surely do it he's going to bring it to completion Philippians 1.6, you know that verse, right? He who began a good work in you will what? Bring it to completion. He's faithful. Listen, how, what, what, how does Paul know this? Well, he knows because they're truly saved. He, he said it in the beginning of the book. They're truly elect, evidenced by the fruit of their lives and the response to the gospel and the fact that they received the true gospel message. It wasn't a fabricated, fake, fictitious gospel. They're truly uh, saved people. So this God who called them will continue to be faithful to them until the end. He's going to surely do this work. He's going to surely do this work. And they can have confidence in it. They can have confidence in it. So is this your prayer for your life? Listen now, we're going to move on and we're just touching on the last part of this. But is this the prayer for your life? Is this your expressed desire? Let me ask you, do you ever pray this? Is this what you want so badly? Do you say to God, God, may you sanctify me completely? I don't want any of the old life. Are you still holding on? Do you express that desire? Do you say, God, will you please keep me? preserve me keep guard so that I keep heading in this direction until you're coming that's what paul wants for them that's what you should want for yourself and so now he moves on to these last little uh, little group of commands here and, and exhortations so let's move on he says in verses 25 through 28 he addresses supplication, sentiment, and submission. He says, brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. These are separate commands or exhortations, and so I just really wanna mention them. We could really do a whole sermon on each one of them, but um, but we won't, don't worry. And... Uh, but i do want to i do want to make mention here as as we kind of head towards the end first supplication he says brothers pray for us brothers is in the emphatic position it's put in the front he doesn't usually do this and why is he doing this because what he's saying that here is we're of the same family he's emphasizing that point now as we close here we're in the same family Namely, the family of God. We have the same father. We have the same goals. We have the same wishes. We have the same desires like a family does. So you should care about what's going on in my life. You should care about what I'm doing. He's emphasizing the fact that they are brothers and then he's saying, pray for us. They should have the same goals. And what's the goal for Paul's life? Mainly gospel advancement. So pray for his ministry is what he's saying. But he's saying us. Who's us? Well, the three ministers. The ones who wrote this letter, Paul, Silas, and who? Who? Timothy. right? Or Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. So he's praying for, says, pray for us, pray for us as ministers. You gotta understand, listen now, Paul, listen, just, I don't want this to be passed over. Paul, is suffering hardships. He's preaching the gospel. He he is suffering in every way, and being faithful in every way. He's not perfect, but he's doing his great task that the Lord has assigned to him. And Paul also believes, listen now, in the efficacy of prayer. I mean, he says it everywhere. You can't say that Paul, the apostle Paul doesn't truly believe in prayer and that it's effective. So it would be silly and crazy for him not to ask for prayer. He's got this great ministry. He believes in the power of prayer. And so now he's asking, it's not surprising he's asking the church to pray for him. Let me just show you some of these verses where he expresses this. Turns to Second Thessalonians chapter three. Second Thessalonians chapter three. He says in verses one through two, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. He, he's saying, I pr- can you pray for me, please, that the same fruit that was produced in you will be produced in other people and that we'll be delivered from these uh, evil men who have no faith in Christ right? That's what he says there. Now now let's look at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Turn there. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19. He says, pray for me, make supplication for me, That Here's what he wants. Words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. He wants prayers for fruit of his life. He wants a prayer for the boldness to proclaim the gospel because this is how he's supposed to speak, declaring it boldly. Turn to Colossians chapter four. Colossians chapter four verses two through four. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison and that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. He's saying, pray for me that there's fruit produced in my life, that I'm delivered from evil men, that I speak boldly and that I speak clearly so that God is glorified, people are saved. Hebrews chapter 13, go there for a second. Hebrews chapter 13. In verse 18. He says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. And then he says, may the God of peace again here. But he says, pray for us. We have a clean conscience. Pray for us as we continue to do this work that God would lead us. Turn to Romans chapter 15. Let me show you just one more. Romans 15 here. Romans chapter 15. He says in verses 31 through 32. He says, pray that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will, I will come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. He wants his ministry to be effective. Let me just tell you, how this relates to us is that you would pray for your pastors. That's the transferable principle here. And this is what he's desiring. As they work to do the gospel ministry, they are not only to treat them in the way in which he's just prescribed back in chapter five, verses 16, I think, or 12, but they're also to, to not only do those things that he's already mentioned, but here now we add this praying for them praying for them. There's a great book and I, and I wanna try to get it for us possibly, but it's, um, it helps us in this. It's a plea to pray for pastors. And this might seem you know, self-serving for me to say this, but can I tell you humbly that it's extremely important for you to do that praying work for the pastors of the church. In fact, I think that that might really protect Satan from getting a foothold from working and that might really ensure the growth of the church and might really help with the effectiveness of the ministry. Do you pray for your pastors? Do you pray for them? So this is what he's saying here and I think that's the transferable principle. Now, let me just say this. I know, I know we're, uh, we're, we're, we need to be done here. So second, he says, he expresses the idea of sentiment. And sentiment really is the idea of feelings being expressed, feelings being expressed. And so this is what he's saying here. You say, well, should we go around kissing everybody? Well, if you've read the book by Zuck, uh, Biblical Interpretation, there's some principles that you can follow. It's, it's really easy to know how to deal with cultural things like the, the long hair or, or the, the kiss or the women wearing head coverings. Those are very easy things for you to deal with. And so when the, cultural, uh, when the culture is different and when the, 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 the principle has not been revoked by scripture or, or, or changed by scripture, uh, but the cultural uh, idea has changed and no longer means what it meant then, then simply you, you base your application on the principle of what it expresses. I'd love to read these few pages to you. That was my plan. I don't have the time, but I can show it to you if you need help. But the principle is what's, what's here. What's the principle with this, with this kiss? Simply affection. And here's the application for us, just because we got to close. The, the, he's expressed how they are to treat one another, their relationships in the church. We just read about that a few sermons ago. Listen, what he's saying here is that you need to show the affection You need to show the care that's in your heart for the other brothers and sisters in Christ. That might acquaint to a text, a handshake, a hug, a call, a pat on the back, whatever. But you need to be an an affectionate church. You you can't say, yeah, I have no harbor bitterness towards these people. I I feel fine about them. I, I really actually like them. But do you show it? Do you show it? You have to show affection to the believers of this church actively. And if you're not showing it, Paul says you're in sin. He's commanding this. You might say, well, I like them. I have nothing wrong, but I don't show affection. Well, maybe there is something wrong in your heart. You need to be one who shows affection to the church. That's what he's saying here. Now, lastly, he's saying submission, submission. At the end here, he says, I adjure you, meaning I authoritatively bind you under solemn obligation and responsibility with God as my witness. And there is a consequence for failing to do what I say. Read this letter to the church. That's what he's saying here. Why? Because this is the authoritative word of God. He knew he was writing the word of God. And this is binding on their conscience and they must submit to it. And that points to the fact that that's what's happening in church. You read the word, You give the sense and you apply the word. That's what he wants them to do in the church. We've turned worship nowadays into a whole lot of other things. You know what Paul wants you to do? The public reading of scripture so that we can take heed to it. That's what he wants done in this. And at the end, he closes this letter by saying this, and then we're done. Grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You know, Paul always starts his letters with grace and always ends his letters with grace? Always. Grace is the main word that he uses all the time. He says always grace to you, right? Grace to you. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Always starts with it, always ends with it. Why? Because that's what's foundationally happened in Christ. And that's how God works in our lives as believers. And that's ultimately what we will receive when we see him face to face. And we will praise God for his grace through salvation. So we did it. I know I just put us way over, but I gotta close us here. So may God sanctify you completely. Pray for us, your pastors. May grace be with you. Show affection to one another. And let's submit to the word of God, amen? Amen. Let's pray.